We aren't entirely sure where the podcast is heading in the future, but thanks for tuning in again. A lot of what has happened in the last week hasn't sunk in yet. We were awake and looking at Twitter when the news of D'Angelo's arrest broke. After checking the jail booking records, we immediately realized that it was the same Joe D'Angelo who was working as an officer for the Exeter Police Department at the time Jennifer Armour and Donna Richmond were killed, just outside the Exeter city limits. Without doing much thinking, we started posting what we already knew about him on our Facebook page, and that information quickly spread around the world. Needless to say, we were a bit shocked and disappointed by the Sacramento DA's press conference. Her statements that the answer to the case had always been in Sacramento, and that D'Angelo started his crimes in June of 1976, are obviously not true. The depth of Sacramento's denial of the VR-EAR connection appears to be bottomless. We also feel that she completely dismissed the brutal murders of Jennifer Armour, Claude Snelling, and Donna Richmond. It's as if Sacramento still believes that the Tulare County victims aren't as important as the other people D'Angelo is accused of killing. Or maybe they're too embarrassed to admit that they could have caught him in 1977, when VPD brought them the vital clues that should have led them to look for the EAR connection to Vasilia and Exeter. The Orange County DA did refer to D'Angelo as the VR, and law enforcement has publicly stated that he admitted to being the VR and EAR, but has denied all homicides in all jurisdictions, including the ones tied to him by DNA. We have a real mix of emotions right now. We're happy that D'Angelo is in jail and for the possible resolution that has now come to the EAR and ONS victims and their families. Unfortunately, our reality is not as rosy. As our listeners know, we connected all of the cases several years ago and published the full podcast last year after we could not get any of the current EAR ONS investigators to look at the materials or evidence we had. Two retired investigators, John Vaughn from VPD and Larry Poole from Orange County, did listen and assisted us beyond measure. They even approached current investigators on our behalf and asked them to review what we had. However, it was like driving head-on into a brick wall. Eventually, John Vaughn convinced current TCSO cold case investigators to listen to the podcast. They invited us and Vaughn to a meeting to discuss the Richmond and Armour cases, and Vaughn's belief that their killer was also the VR. We answered their questions, shared information, and felt confident that they would give everything a fresh look. The next thing we heard were those same TCSO investigators on the news accusing Oscar Clifton of killing Jennifer Armour. They made that public announcement without one piece of direct or circumstantial evidence, not even a tip or rumor. Nothing. They could have easily checked with us regarding Oscar's whereabouts in November 1974 and asked us the details of the prior TCSO investigation into Oscar for Jennifer's case. They didn't ask us or Oscar's family. Based on absolutely nothing, they publicly accused Oscar of another murder he didn't commit. Right now, TCSO's position is that Oscar Clifton killed Jennifer Armour and Donna Richmond. The only piece of evidence that has ever linked him to either homicide is his invoice book, Wiped of Prints, Found by Donna's Bike. The book likely placed by the killer at the staged kidnapping scene. An Exeter police officer with an advanced degree in police investigation and forensics has reportedly admitted to being the VR and EAR, and TCSO doesn't see a connection. There are not adequate words to express our level of frustration right now. 
TCSO did not believe us last year when we told them that the EAR was in Exeter in 1975. Now we have evidence that the EAR killed Claude Snelling while he was trying to kidnap Beth. This was a few blocks from where Jennifer was kidnapped ten months earlier, and only three months before Donna was killed a mile from Jennifer, just outside Exeter. We're just starting the work to gather evidence specifically linking D'Angelo to the Richmond and Armour homicides, but we'll share some of what we already knew about him before this week. We're not going to go into D'Angelo's entire history, or how he ties into the EAR ONS cases, since others are already giving that extensive coverage. Instead, we're going to focus on his time in Tulare County. Exeter Sun, January 5th, 1972. Dwayne Thompson, honored on his birthday. Dining out, bowling, and a cake presented to him by his children were among the pleasant things that happened to Dwayne Thompson on his birthday recently. In addition to the children, Scott, Bradley, and Renee, Mr. and Mrs. Thompson shared the cake at their home with Mr. and Mrs. Jack Basanko and John D'Angelo, all from Downey. Coming from Citrus Heights was Joe D'Angelo. Joe and John are Mrs. Thompson's brothers. The Basankos are her parents. At that point, D'Angelo's sister lived about one half mile from the site where Donna's bike was found and a mile from Donna's house. The sister's house also backed onto an alley shared by Danny Boland's house, the concrete contractor working in Vesalia near Oscar the day Donna was killed. Danny ended up giving important witness testimony at Oscar's trial and knew all about Oscar's 1965 conviction because Danny's father was the minister at the church attended by Oscar's family. So far, this is the only confirmed visit to Exeter we have for D'Angelo prior to his residency. Obviously, there could have been other family occasions for visits between his Navy discharge in 1966 and his move there in May of 1973. His sister and her family were living in Exeter in 1969, so there is an obvious four-year period to investigate. Since we've been looking for the VREARONS in Exeter for many years, we have hundreds of pages of local research to go through. We'll share a few incidents that immediately popped into our minds and hopefully follow up with some more in future episodes. This is from the Exeter Sun, Wednesday, September 9th, 1970. Leave house in a mess. Exeter police are investigating the breaking and entering and possible burglary of the Brown residence on C Street. The crime was discovered Tuesday night by Mrs. Brown, Mr. Brown's mother. The Browns were not at home at the time of the incident. Entry was apparently made by prying loose a screen on the back porch of the home, after which considerable malicious mischief was perpetrated. The house was ransacked by the burglars, who reportedly weren't destructive, but left a scattered mess of clothing and household items in their wake. Assessment of damage and possible loss had not been set at press time Wednesday morning. Exeter Sun, July 7, 1971. Seaside Service Robbed A burglary of the Seaside Service 400 West Pine in Exeter netted the burglars $166.85, the Exeter Police Department was told. A ring of keys were given out to a man who asked for the use of the restroom and were not returned. Money was taken from a floor safe by a key, which apparently had been on the same ring with the restroom key. The suspect appeared to have entered through a rear window sometime between Monday and Tuesday night. 
This is from the Visalia Times Delta, July 8, 1971. Exeter Police Seek Burglar More than $166 was reported stolen yesterday from the floor safe at Seaside Service Station on West Pine Street. Police speculate the burglary is connected with a series of cat burglaries which have been reported within the past week. Five homes located in the 200 and 300 blocks of Peach Drive were burglarized last week. Earlier this week, two units in an apartment house on H Street were burglarized. In each case, the police said, the burglar or burglars entered the victim's homes during the night while the victims were asleep and removed cash and other items from drawers and clothing. Exeter Sun, September 22, 1971. Clinic robbed of checks. The medical clinic on San Juan Avenue in Exeter, opposite the Memorial Hospital, was burglarized sometime during the night hours. Offices broken into include those of Dr. Raymond Perkison, George Carroll, and J.C. McClure. Stolen were checks made out to the physicians and some cash. The loss to Dr. Carroll was reported to have been around $200, Dr. Perkison a check, and to Dr. McClure around $164. Officer Larry Irion investigated the burglary after it was reported to police on September 20th. Although this crime doesn't scream VR to us, Dr. Perkinson is a frequent burglary target over the next few years. This is from the Exeter Sun, September 29, 1971. Foreign Coins Stolen A burglary at the office of William M. Thornton, attorney at 401 East Maple Street, Exeter, was reported to police. The thief or thieves gained entry through a window on the southeast corner of the building by prying off a screen and sliding back the window. Damage to property was estimated at about $5. A small American flag from a staff was stolen and some estimated 200 to 300 foreign coins with value unknown. This theft happened sometime between September 27 or 28 during the night, according to Exeter Police Department, with Henry Fry, the investigating officer. Exeter Sun, October 20th, 1971. Thieves steal money while families sleep. A burglary occurred during the night hours of October 19th at the Death Riage residence on Bryant Court, Exeter. The thief or thieves forced entry through the rear door and removed money from a purse that had been left in the dining room. Also money was taken from a wallet belonging to one of the Death Riage children. The victims were home and asleep, with a total loss of $8, according to reporting officer Larry Pritchard of the Exeter Police Department. A burglary at the Millsap residence, Whittier Court, Exeter, was also reported on October 19th. The thief or thieves forced entry through a rear door. Mrs. Millsap had left her purse on the dining room table, and the suspect removed all cash from the purse when the victims were asleep. The total loss was $9, according to reporting officer Larry Pritchard of the Exeter Police Department. This is from the Exeter Sun, January 19, 1972. Steel car from a garage. A car, Mercedes, owned by Dr. Raymond Perkinson of Exeter, was pushed from his garage into the alley and taken away. The windshield was broken in the act of stealing the car. The vehicle was last seen by the owner at about 9 p.m. on January 17th, and the theft was reported the next day. Henry Fry, assistant chief, is investigating the theft. Exeter Sun, 
Wednesday, September 13th, 1972. Police investigate rash of burglaries in Exeter. Several burglaries were investigated this past week by the Exeter Police Department. Two of these occurred the same night in the same apartment building. Police were called to the apartment of John Tabor at North Orange at 5.30 a.m. September 9th when he reported that a burglar had entered the bedroom where he and his wife were asleep, removed a wallet from the dresser to the living room, and took $20 from it. The thief also opened a small jewelry box in the living room, but nothing was removed. While checking with neighbors for further leads, the police uncovered another burglary in the same building. Mrs. Benita Saldivar's purse had been taken from her living room to her kitchen and a set of keys removed. A small metal box had been removed from the bedroom where Mrs. Saldivar was sleeping, taken to the kitchen, and rifled. During this time, her son was asleep on the living room couch and her daughter asleep in another bedroom. One of the keys belonged to the fairway laundrette where Mrs. Salvador is employed as a manager. The police ascertained that the laundrette had been opened with a key but found nothing disturbed. Screens from both apartments were found in trash cans behind the building, along with two knickknacks from the Saldivar apartment. This is from the Exeter Sun, Wednesday, January 3, 1973. Burglars hit church. A burglary at the First Baptist Church was reported to Exeter Police by Reverend Maurice Denham at 8.35 a.m. Tuesday. Chief Elmer Morehouse investigated and found entry had been made through the nursery room where the screens were removed. A stenoret, transistor radio, and a fire extinguisher were taken. At 9.40 o'clock that same morning, Officer Nick Martinez answered a call to the Exeter Library where he was shown a tape recorder and stenoret that had been left there. The stenoret was returned to the church. The owner of the tape recorder has not yet been identified. Another burglary took place at the home of Thelma Mangles, 206 Plum, between 9.30 and 10.30 Saturday morning. According to the police, entry was made through a rear window and $360 in cash removed from inside a Bible that was inside the dining room cabinet. Exeter Sun, Wednesday, March 7, 1973. Burglars strike several places in Exeter area. A screen was removed and a window open at the home of Marie Lopez, North Filbert, on March 4th. The thief removed $30 in cash from a purse in a bedroom. A theft of $700 worth of jewelry was committed at the home of Brad Wooten on West Palm on March 2nd. Wooten was away for the weekend when entry to his home was made, tearing a screen and breaking a window in the back door. This is from the Exeter Sun, May 23, 1973. Joe D'Angelo, new Exeter police officer. Joe D'Angelo, 27, has joined the Exeter Police Department. Officer D'Angelo began his duties May 19th. His background in police work include 32 weeks as an intern in the Roseville Police Department. He attended a law enforcement program at Sierra College in Placer County. He earned a BA at the California State University and is continuing postgraduate work in criminal justice under an honors program. D'Angelo is making his home in Exeter. He has his sister, Becky Thompson, living here. He moved here from Citrus Heights, Lesser County. He plans to marry Sharon Huddle, also of Citrus Heights, on November 10th. 
they will make their home in Exeter. It is our understanding that D'Angelo lived with his sister and her family for a period when he first moved to Exeter. At that point, the family had a new house just south of the Exeter golf course near Belmont Road. It's interesting to note that D'Angelo's brother-in-law was a phone installer for many years. He handled large commercial and municipal jobs, including the installation of the phone systems at the new Exeter police station in 1974. It seems that D'Angelo would have had many sources for understanding phone traces and traps, and how to avoid them. Despite Exeter PD's current uncertainty about D'Angelo's service in the department, his work made the local papers a few times in those early months. From the Exeter Sun, June 20th, 1973. Police officers foiled two burglaries this week. Two attempted burglaries were foiled this past week by Exeter police officers. On June 13th, Officer Joe D'Angelo observed a person attempting to break into a vehicle near the fairway apartments. D'Angelo pursued the suspect, who fled on foot, but failed to apprehend him. A slip wire was found in the right window of the vehicle by Gary Fox and Officer Nick Cummings. The wire had been used to open the window of the auto, owned by Stephen George Gardner, 310 North Orange. Nothing was taken from the car. While Sergeant Fox and Officer D'Angelo were on patrol duty the night of June 18th, they observed that the door of the lube room at the Shell Station on Kawea had been opened. A padlock had been cut off, but nothing had been taken from the station. Apparently, the officers had frightened the would-be thief away. Exeter Sun, July 18, 1973. Exeter man charged with assault. Gordon Dwayne Hip, 19, of West Maple Street, was ordered to appear in the Exeter Justice Court for a preliminary hearing Tuesday, July 24th at 10 a.m., charged with four counts of assault on a peace officer with a deadly weapon. Bail for Hip has been set at $5,000. According to Exeter Police reports, Officer Douglas Cummings answered a radio call advising of a man with a gun walking on West Maple near Belmont at 8.57 p.m. July 11th. On his arrival in that area by patrol car, he recognized Hip, who was carrying a 12-gauge shotgun, as a man he had attempted unsuccessfully on more than one occasion to serve with a warrant from the Visalia Municipal Court. Hip, according to the report, threatened Cummings both verbally and with the shotgun. Officers Jerry Ellis and Joseph D'Angelo arrived to assist Cummings, who had managed to slug Hip on the head and grab his shotgun, forcing the barrel into the ground. Officer Ellis handcuffed Hip. The shotgun was found to be loaded and cocked. After treatment at the Tulare County Hospital for a laceration on the head, Hip was booked into the Tulare County Jail. During the summer of 1973, while D'Angelo was fighting crime on the streets of Exeter, someone was busy stealing blue chip stamps. Exeter Sun, July 4th, 1973. Machine taken. A trading stamp machine valued at $60 was taken June 28th from Jerry's Arco Station at 343 South Kawea. Exeter police said the machine was taken after the station had closed for the night. You can see an ad for Jerry's and the blue chip stamps on our website and our Facebook page. From the Exeter Sun, August 22, 1973. Navy veteran serves Exeter as policeman. James D'Angelo Jr. believes that without law and order, there can be no government, and without a democratic government, there can be no freedom. Law enforcement is his career, he says, and his job is serving the community. D'Angelo, 27, is a native of Bath, New York. He graduated from Folsom Senior High in June of 1964 and joined the Navy the following September. 
He served 22 months in combat in Vietnam at the 17th and 18th parallels. He was an honor graduate at Sierra College, receiving his Associate of Arts degree in Police Science. In 1970, he attended the California State University at Sacramento. He received his bachelor's degree in criminal justice, specializing in criminal law. He did postgraduate work and completed his internship in Roseville Patrol Identification and Investigation Divisions under Chief of Police Hall. D'Angelo has served as an officer in the Exeter Police Department since May 18 of this year. There's a lot to think about in that article, including the photo of D'Angelo at the top of it. We admit to looking at D'Angelo a couple of years ago and dismissing him as a person of interest. We just missed it. McGowan, who got an excellent look at the VR, described him as light blonde, extremely pale, dimple-chinned, and so young he looked like he hadn't shaved yet. Multiple EAR descriptions included very pale skin, blonde to light brown hair, and light blue eyes. We had also been told by multiple sources that the EAR DNA profile indicated that he was Northern European, likely German or Scandinavian. The VR and EAR seemed to be about 5'9 to 5'10. When we saw a 27-year-old, 5'11", dark-haired, olive-skinned guy, we looked right past him. From mid-1976 through 1979, he was living in Roseville, Placer County, and working about 30 miles north of Rancho Cordova in Auburn, California. In mapping his house, we can now see it was only five miles north of the northernmost EAR attacks in Citrus Heights. But when we first looked at him, it did not strike us as a red flag location. The only thing that really made us pause and consider him was his arrival and departure from Exeter. We should have looked harder. We're still mystified by his age and the juvenile nature of some of the VR behavior. The Converse tennis shoes, bike riding, stealing children's piggy banks and penny jars, moving things around, and eating from the fridge. However, looking at D'Angelo's personality and training, we realize it could have been deliberate. Those actions could have been planned to confuse the police and shift their focus to teenage suspects. It would be much like the EAR's attempt to frame a teenage neighbor of one of the early EAR victims by planting evidence in his house. Given the elaborate scene staging in the Richmond case, the constant jurisdiction shifting, and the multiple instances of deliberate misdirection, this appears to be a plausible theory. There's no question that the VREAR-ONS was highly aware of the police investigations and media coverage of his crimes. He both responded to them and attempted to manipulate them. We were also a bit surprised to see that D'Angelo did have military service, but serving as a Navy mechanic is hardly special forces, and he didn't make it his career. In fact, he appears to have served less than his full tour, possibly due to an injury he received that cut off the top of one of his fingers. Strangely, his brother was also discharged early from his service in Vietnam after suffering a similar finger injury. We think Larry Poole called this one when he said that any military service by the EAR did not last long. Larry predicted that difficulties with authority and command would have brought a quick end to his service. We're far more interested in all of the advanced law enforcement education D'Angelo obtained before arriving in Exeter. He had studied areas such as investigative techniques, forensics, and criminal law. He knew far more about policing and the justice system than the average small-town patrol officer. As we understand from officers who worked alongside him in Exeter, he never let anyone forget how intellectual, educated, smart, and superior he was. 
As we've stated in previous episodes, the complexity of the scenes and evidence staging in the Richmond case led us to believe that the killer thought he could outsmart the police, and we felt he was playing an elaborate game with them. That sounds a lot less crazy now than it did when we first recorded it a year ago. We had other reasons for believing the VR may have been a police officer, but we did not include those in the original podcast episodes in an effort to maintain a working relationship with VPD and TCSO cold case units. To be clear here, the interest in police officers and their families is not new or retroactive to the finding of D'Angelo, but it was something that we deliberately kept to ourselves. The mere suggestion of implicating a member of law enforcement makes some people extremely angry and defensive, and they stop listening to the rest of the information. There are bad people in every profession, and raising questions about one bad officer does not make you anti-law enforcement or tarnish the entire department or profession. Unfortunately, many members of law enforcement do not see it that way if you're talking about someone from their own county, especially someone they may have worked alongside. As we noted in episode one, the Richmond bike scene and Neil Ranch, where Donna was found, were just outside Exeter PD jurisdiction, which kicked the case to TCSO. Her clothing was also discarded just outside the city limits, on the opposite side of Exeter. The killer drove all of the way through Exeter before he started dropping the clothing trail. That always looked incredibly deliberate to us. As we also noted in a prior episode, Jennifer Armour was kidnapped in Visalia, VPD jurisdiction, but murdered in the county which gave the homicide case to TCSO. This ensured that the missing persons case and the homicide investigation were permanently severed. The agencies did not work together or share information, and a police officer would understand the advantage of that. We also discussed an unsolved mass rape attempt in October 1974 that involved a man armed with a gun. That attack occurred in a house that's backyard touched the city of Visalia, but was technically in the county, thus TCSO jurisdiction. The VR and Snelling detectives were completely unaware of that attack and had never looked at it as part of their investigations. We can't get inside the VR's head and know why he wanted those cases to fall to TCSO, but it certainly worked in his favor. In Donna's case, an innocent man was convicted. Jennifer's case was ruled accidental drowning, And then TCSO decided something got, quote, out of hand while she was partying with some boys, and they closed the case for 40 years as solved, but not prosecutable. TCSO originally arrested a neighbor of the victim in the masked attacker case, but he was acquitted by a jury based on the testimony of disinterested alibi witnesses. The Vasilia cases also gave us a few important reasons to look at police officers. The first was something that we noticed when we divided the VR attack area into four separate quadrants where he operated. We noticed that they matched the VPD patrol areas, which had a rotating schedule. We also noticed that the VR seemed to avoid the college campus, which had its own security officers. That made us think beyond someone who just monitored police scanners. It had a working knowledge of VPD shift and patrol schedules. We felt that included both law enforcement and their families, maybe someone who had gone on ride-alongs. John Vaughn had some thoughts of his own to add to our observations. 
After both the Snelling homicide and the McGowan shooting, VPD had put out calls for all available officers to help with the search. Specifically, per VPD reports of those incidents, that included VPD, CHP, and TCSO. It was possible that the VR simply made it to his vehicle and reported to the incidents as a responding officer. Nobody would think it odd for Exeter PD to show up after an all-available unit's radio call. Even more specific were Vaughn's concerns about the VR stakeouts. Every single time they deployed their teams, regardless of the time, night, or part of town, the VR failed to show up. This became so suspicious that when McGowan discovered the footprints under Jane Smith's window, the unit decided to deploy the stakeout in total secrecy. Only the actual members involved were told about the operation, and they maintained complete radio silence until the shots fired call went out. It worked. The VR showed up. Of course, our most obvious reason for looking at police officers was the Jennifer Armour and Donna Richmond abductions. Remember that Jennifer was last seen on a main street, Demarie, almost to the parking lot where her friends were waiting to give her a ride to the football game. Retroactively, TCSO came up with the theory that Jennifer never intended to meet her friends and had secret plans to go party with a group of older boys. There is zero evidence of that. The friend that was supposed to go with her believed that they were going to the game, and her ride at Kmart waited an extra 15 minutes for her after she was late, and then looked for her all night at the game. If someone had tried to force her into a vehicle on that busy street on a Friday night, we would expect a witness to have noticed that. There were no such reports. So, why would Jennifer voluntarily get in a car a block or two from where her friends were waiting? One reason would be if a police officer pulled up next to her, flashed a badge, and told her to get in the car. TCSO says that they spoke to a witness who indicated that it looked to him like Jennifer was hitchhiking, which was illegal. Imagine if the kidnapper told Jennifer that she was in trouble and he was going to take her to the station or home to talk to her parents. She would immediately get in the car, for certain. This didn't need to be an actual police officer, but she might have paused if he weren't in uniform or in an official-looking car. We feel that the same logic applies to Donna's kidnapping. In reading through the Exeter papers, which we've done countless times, we had noticed that there were two new bike riding enforcement campaigns going on when Donna disappeared. This is the Exeter Sun, June 27, 1973. Hey kids, bikes on sidewalks no longer. Riding bicycles on the sidewalk will definitely be out with the dawning of Sunday, July 1st, as Exeter will begin strict enforcement of state and local laws governing the operation and equipment of bicycles. The other main target of the crackdown will be the riding of bicycles without lights during darkness. Children under 14 who are cited for a first offense will be given a time and date to appear with a parent at the police station for an informal hearing. Failure to appear will result in legal action. Others may be cited to a probation officer or to the Exeter Farmersville Justice Court. The youthful offender in the past has been the one who caused injury to elderly people, and parents are urged to stress to their children not to ride on sidewalks. This is particularly important in the downtown area, although it is illegal to ride a bicycle on the sidewalk in any part of Exeter. Bicyclists should realize that they must follow the general rules of the road, must have a lighted lamp on bikes when riding at night, and riding the wrong way against traffic also is against the law. Pamphlets are being prepared by the police department showing all state laws and city ordinances on operation of bicycles. They may be obtained at the Exeter Police Department. 
This is the Exeter Sun, August 22, 1973. Council calls for bids on new police facility. Also adopted on first reading was a raise in the bicycle licensing fee from $1 for two years to $2 for a two-year period. The police chief said police officers are already citing bicyclists who use downtown sidewalks and said when the licensing program is in full swing, his department will have more control. Exeter Sun, September 12, 1973. Railroad takes action against cycle offenders. Numerous complaints by Exeter residents have been received by representatives of the Southern Pacific Railroad, according to the railroad's special agent, C.J. Branham. In an effort to reduce the problem, the railroad would post the property no trespassing and have a special agent in the area this coming weekend. The railroad right-of-way extends 30 feet either side from the center of the railroad track. The Exeter Police Department will issue citations to those in violation. The California Penal Code Section 369G reads, Any person who rides, drives, or propels any vehicle upon and along the track of any railroad through or over its private right-of-way without the authorization of its superintendent or other officer in charge thereof is guilty of a misdemeanor. As an Exeter PD officer, D'Angelo would have been charged with enforcement in the issuance of citations for these writing violations. That's not to say that Donna was doing anything wrong, but she wouldn't have known that. She was 14 and alone. This would also explain why Donna's kidnapper took her bike with them and why the wheel was turned all the way around. It needed to fit into a car trunk. We always felt that Donna voluntarily got in the vehicle that kidnapped her, since her bike was also taken. She had to believe that the ride was safe and normal. She and her bike were going home together. This would have been someone she knew or a stranger she told her address for the ride, either someone who seemed trustworthy or an authority figure. The obvious problem with kidnapping girls using your badge is that you can't leave them alive as witnesses. It's a very easy way to get any victim in your car quietly, and they might even allow you to handcuff them, but they know your face, your vehicle, and possibly your name. It's not a rape scheme, it's a murder scheme. It's entirely possible that after killing Jennifer, the VR decided against using that method again. We have no idea how close TCSO came to him in that case. Did a witness report seeing her talking to a policeman, and he found himself questioned about it? Was he seen out near the spot where she was killed and put into the canal? Obviously, the VR could say he told Jennifer to stop hitchhiking and someone might have given her a ride after that. Or he was out in the canal area they call the jungle, breaking up a party, but didn't see Jennifer or anything suspicious. Perhaps the attack didn't go the way he planned, and he decided to try something different in the future. What we do know is that the VR went on a ransacking spree the weekend of Jennifer's funeral service. He also returned to ransacking immediately after the Snelling homicide. There is no question that this offender alternated between prowling, peeping, ransacking, and killing. The myth that criminals commit their crimes in a straight line of escalation is just that, a myth. We touched on this a bit in episode 13, but two cases of which we have personal knowledge are good illustrations. Gary Ridgway's first noticed victims were teen girls, found strangled and weighted down in the Green River in 1982. However, in 1975, when Ridgway was 16, 
he approached a six-year-old boy in a local park, stabbed him in the liver, and left him to bleed to death. He said he did it just to see what it felt like to kill someone, and he had no idea the boy had survived until told so by investigators in 2003. Based on his confessions and investigations, there is no indication that he killed anyone in between 1975 and 1982. His later victims were not children or male, and they were all strangled to death. In the intervening years, Ridgway picked up many women, some for paid sex, some he raped and threatened, and a few he nearly killed. Even after he began killing women in 1982, he picked up and paid others for sex, and sometimes just cruised around looking at them. He stopped dumping his victims in the river when he realized that they were found too quickly, and he couldn't go back and visit them in private. His M.O. developed and changed with the murders. When the police got too close, he just stopped killing and went back to cruising and picking up women for sex. Robert Yates in Spokane, another case that is personal to us, had a similarly erratic escalation pattern. His first murder was committed in 1975, shortly after he was married. His new father-in-law helped Robert get a job as a corrections officer at the prison. One day, at lunchtime, Robert drove to a city park, observed a young couple having a picnic, and shot them both in the head. He was never suspected. He did not kill again until 1988, and then took a break until his final spree started in 1996. All of his other victims were women who were sexually assaulted and shot while on paid dates with him. He never killed another couple or attacked in a public place. During all of those years, he was a respected helicopter pilot and training officer for the U.S. Army. Oh, and one more. In 1961, Ted Bundy is believed to have kidnapped a six-year-old neighbor from her bedroom. She has never been found. Bundy was 14 in the neighborhood paperboy. He was seen that morning near the university construction site by an officer looking for the missing girl. The officer dismissed him at the time, but it's now believed that the girl's body is under the concrete footing or foundation of one of the university buildings. Although Bundy is a suspect in a 1966 homicide, his next confirmed victim was in 1974. During the years between 1961 and 1974, he admitted to being out nearly every night, prowling, peeping, and burglarizing houses. We've seen Larry Poole try to dispel the myth of straight-line escalation a few times, but it never sinks in for a lot of people. It was a popular criminal theory taught in the 70s and 80s, but it's turned out that escalation is often one step forward, two steps back, or three to the side. Some of the reasons are practical, like committing a murder draws an enormous amount of attention and police resources. That might be unexpected and cause the perpetrator to go back to less risky behavior for a time. The unexpected can also cause the killer to try something different, something less messy or more quiet, or to make it less likely for the victim to escape. Maybe the first murder didn't match his expectation, and he needs to rethink to find a different type of victim or a better place to attack. There are a million variables, including the psychology of the individual, his motivation, his acceptable risk of capture, and the methods available to him. It's important not to get bogged down in theories or expectations and look at the facts as they present themselves. We don't need to know why the VREARONS may have ransacked, killed, ransacked, killed, ransacked, killed, raped and ransacked, and then turned to killing again. The fact is, he did. 
If the VR were forced to leave his job and life in Exeter because of intense investigative pressure brought on by the Snelling homicide and the McGowan shooting, he may have decided it was smarter to change his MO, so he didn't need to worry about killing witnesses. The early EAR attacks looked just like Snelling, except he immediately started binding, blindfolding, and gagging his victims. For a while, he still tried taking them outside, but eventually he abandoned that and created the atmosphere he was seeking in their living rooms. Rodney Miller and Majores were not planned shootings, but committed to facilitate his escape and eliminate people who could identify him. It was long speculated that the EAR stopped attacking in Sacramento after the release of the composites in that case. Maybe someone joked that it looked like him, or it just made him nervous. The move to the Contra Costa area also coincided with his shoplifting arrest and subsequent firing. Perhaps he just had more free time to drive greater distances. Based on discussions with retired VPD Sergeant Vaughn and a review of the suspect lists that we have, D'Angelo was never a VR suspect. However, it looks like Agent McGowan may have gotten close. We found handwritten notes on the bottom of his personal suspect list reminding him to check the 1971 Exeter PD yearbook photos. We really wish he had looked at any of them between 1973 and 1976. It feels like he was just that close to catching him. Maybe if the Sacramento Sheriff's Office had listened to Vaughn and McGowan and taken their advice about how to stake out and trap the EAR, he could have been stopped in 1977. Or maybe they could have worked together to eliminate Tulare County suspects. Exeter's population in 1975 was 4,500. About half of those were men, so about 2,250. Many of those were Hispanic, too old, too young, too short or tall, disabled, etc., from the remaining list, focus on people who arrived around 1973 or 74 and left in 1976. This case was solvable. The rest of D'Angelo's time at Exeter PD must have been fairly unremarkable since his policing failed to make the local news. However, Exeter continued to be plagued with unusual break-ins. Luckily, Exeter PD came up with a plan to combat them, promote a patrol officer to sergeant, and put him in charge of burglary prevention and investigation. This is from the Exeter Sun, September 12, 1973. Coins, jewels taken from Exeter home. A coin collection and jewelry, including a ring and earrings, were taken from the Exeter home of Raymond Perkinson, M.D. Exeter police said entry was made on September 4, either through a front window or sliding back doors. Estimated loss value was $1,750. Exeter Sun, March 6, 1974. Other crimes reported to the police included a burglary at the home of Leo Voss on South Korea. Entry through a rear door was made by prying with a sharp object. The house was ransacked. Two adding machines, a rifle, and a jewelry box, total value of $570, were stolen. This is from the Exeter Sun, September 18, 1974. From the police blotter. Johnny Arnold of Lindsay, while working in the Friant Kern Canal, noticed a purse floating with the current. He retrieved it and notified police. Through an address on a checkbook, officers traced the purse owner, Allie Dethriage of 103 Clarence Street, who did not realize it was missing. 
Loss included $95 in cash and personal items valued at $20. Police have no clues. Just as a note, this victim was the mother of TCSO officer and DA investigator John Dethriage. Exeter Sun, December 25, 1974. Owner picks up pieces after home burglary. Lois Rogers is still picking up the pieces after a burglary at her residence last Thursday. Pieces of jigsaw puzzles, that is, 7,000 of them. Someone who ransacked her home stole items valued at $458 and cast parts from seven puzzles around her home. This is report of VPD Shipley, October 14, 1975. 10-10-75, this agent contacted Garnita Hickman, Road 164, Visalia, an employee at the Visalia Blue Chip Stamp Store. She stated on or about October 1973, a white male, approximately 21 years old, 6 foot tall, 200 pounds, light brown short hair, no glasses, with a very smooth complexion, came into the stamp store and purchased some women's jewelry, earrings, and necklace. No further description. She stated that he entered the store, approached the counter, and advised her of jewelry he requested. He apparently knew which items he wanted prior to coming to the store. She advised that he appeared, in her words, as weird. He apparently walked about the store, talking to himself and paying no attention to anyone. She stated that in the past two years, he has returned to the store on a minimum of ten times, each time purchasing women's jewelry, earrings, and necklaces. Each time he purchased the items, he made the comment that the jewelry was for his mother. On one occasion, the store did not have in stock the items he requested, and she had to place an order for them. She advised the subject that she would call him at his residence when the items arrived. He stated that he did not want his residence contacted. He returned to the store on four different occasions to ascertain if the items had arrived. On one occurrence, the subject entered the store in an angry rage, stating that he just drove his vehicle across a concrete curb located in the blue chip stamp store parking lot and ruined his tire. He threatened to sue the blue chip stamp company for damages to his vehicle. The last time she could remember the subject being in the store was on or about September of 1975. She stated that he was a regular customer who never spent more than four or five books at a time but over a period of two years has possibly spent 60 to 80 books. Mrs. Heckman stated that she has seen the subject on numerous occasions and will contact the police department if she observes him again. She states that she would be able to recognize him from a photograph. Anti-burglary funds okayed. Anti-burglary teams for the Exeter Farmersville area and Tulare have been approved for 1976-77 by the Central California Criminal Justice Planning Board. Funding for the second year of the Exeter and Farmersville Police Department's program, known as Joint Attack on Burglary, will begin on August 1st. Funds from federal, state, and local governments will pay the salaries of two officers, Sergeant Greg Lanford of Farmersville and Sergeant Joe D'Angelo of Exeter. The two officers will investigate burglaries and attempt to prevent them by informing the public about burglary prevention methods.
D'Angelo was married to Sharon Huddle. She was also from Placer County. Presumably, she moved to Exeter to join him at the time. Despite our best efforts and those of volunteer researchers in Visalia, we have not been able to confirm a residence address for them in Tulare County. Because D'Angelo was a police officer, there was no residence address or phone number listed for him in the phone directory, just his name and profession. The D'Angelos did not own any property, so we're trying to find a rental in a haystack right now. Sharon got her BA from Fresno State and her law degree from McGeorge School of Law. She passed the bar exam in 1982, was inactive from January to September 1987, and has been practicing law in Sacramento to the present day. Her law career, past client reviews, and writings about her opinions on surrogate parenting give a lot of insight into her personality and demeanor. They're well worth looking up online. Their first daughter was born a few months after the Withune homicide, and their second daughter a few months after Janelle Cruz was killed. We've neither found nor read any indication that they were ever divorced, although it appears that they've lived apart for many years. Sharon clearly has a story to tell, but if they're still married, both marital privilege and marital communication would apply. That means nothing he told her while they were married can be used against him, and she cannot be forced to testify. The last sign of the D'Angelo's in Exeter was a letter to the editor of the newspaper. This is from the Visalia Times Delta, June 2, 1976. Letter to the editor, Poor Stay Poor. In the past and at the present, cost of living raises are given to state employees on a percentage basis. Those with the highest earnings receive the largest percentage increase in pay, and those with the lowest earnings receive the smallest percentage increase in pay. For example, a person earning $2,000 a month would probably receive a 15% wage increase based on past increases or $300. And a person earning $600 a month would probably receive a 5% wage increase or $30. In Governor Edmund Brown's State of the State Address, he proposed a flat, across-the-board, $70 increase for all state employees. The reason being that food and other prices increase in dollars, not in percentages. So, unless the state legislature sides with Governor Brown and votes for a flat, across-the-board dollar increase, the present system of giving raises will continue to allow the rich to get richer and the poor to stay poor. Signed, Sharon D'Angelo, Exeter. In the next episode, we're going to head back to the Donna Richmond case and see what evidence might fit with D'Angelo. We've read a lot of people expressing relief that the case is finally over, but for us, we feel like the hardest work is still ahead.